want to take a few minutes to tell you about our latest sponsor, Benevity. Benevity is a company I know really well. Not only are they led by wonderful people who are driven by purpose and a desire to make a positive difference to the world, they're also global leaders in their field. So Benevity's technology facilitates workplace giving, volunteering, as well as grants management. It helps employees to deliver positive and meaningful impact through the support of different causes and different charities. And I know from personal experience, having used it only last week, that it really works and it's effective and efficient. So I wanted to give to a cause. I wanted my employee to match it. It all happened through through clicks online. Check them out. Go to the website, benevity.com. Highly recommend checking them out as a potential for your corporate, your business. Let's get back to the show. It's about ensuring the culture of performance, of ambition for the board for itself. Purpose Tea Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Everyone, welcome to Purposely with Brian Kavanagh. Brian is the author of the book, Governing with Purpose, a guide for existing or potential charity trustees. I don't know about you, but I am a trustee of charity. Um, and I think purpose, being focused on purpose, the reason year that you're there, the reason the charity or the nonprofit exists is a really good approach. And you'll hear from this episode, lots of guidance, lots of tips, lots of really good stuff that can help you or your charity when it comes to governance. Before we get into that, can I just ask you to, whatever platform you're on, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, can you please hit follow? It makes a massive difference to me getting the message out there. Without further ado, Brian Kavanagh. Brian Kavanagh, welcome to Pepsi Podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Excellent. So I'm in Auckland, New Zealand. You're in Ireland. I actually didn't find out whereabouts you are. I'm in the smallest county in Ireland called County Louth, which just happens to be the birthplace of Bridget the Warrior. Uh, she's the, a patron saint of Ireland, but she's been reclaimed by everyone. And we have a national holiday based on February 1st, her birthday tomorrow. And because tomorrow in the gold Celtic calendar is the start of spring. So a great way for us to finish winter with an enlightening conversation, uh, stimulated, inspired by Bridget, channeled through me from County Louth on the edge of Europe and you're on the edge of the Pacific. Great stuff. Wonderful. Love that. Absolutely. And you are a trusted advisor. You're an expert on charity governance and leadership. You're also an author, and in 2022, you published Governing with Purpose. What was the aim of the book? The aim of the book was quite simply, I work a lot with charities and boards. And when I tried to find a simple text for them to read, I didn't find anything in the library. I could find lots of things about corporate governance in the private sector, about visionary CEOs, mostly American. But for someone who's just in a charity, and wants something to reflect and read on and develop their thinking on, I found there was very little, and I decided to put some of my thoughts and ideas down on paper and publish a book. And I quite enjoyed the experience. I first thought it was going to be like drawing teeth, and I don't particularly like enjoy writing, but I did find it much more enjoyable and stimulating than I hoped it would be. Yeah, and before we get into the content of the book, yeah, I'm not a massive fan of writing either, but um, like 
how did you overcome those barriers or perceived barriers to write that book? Well, it was two things. One is I'd, I thought about it for a while and I'd amassed a bit of stuff. So I wasn't starting completely blank from a, 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 a clean sheet of paper with all the intimidation that brings. I'd also been on a course run by a woman called Alison Jones, Practical Inspiration Publishing, who published a book. She does a 10-day course that helps you get your book into order and you do a, a section each day on a very structured framework and she edits and guides and suggests. So after a 10-day experience, I felt quite emboldened to have a structure. To some extent, I've probably been carrying a structure in my head for quite a while without realising it. But after that 10 days, I had the structure down. So I had a structure and I had to write at least 50,000 words by September as a first draft. So I had a structure, a framework, and that made it much easier and less intimidating. And I have to say, the support throughout the writing experience by the publishers in particular, Alison, was first class. It allowed me just to concentrate and put words on the paper. And that was, as I say, quite a liberating experience for me. And in terms of psychologically, being able to write a book after thinking about it for some while and starting and stopping again, in terms of sense of achievement and purpose, fabulous experience. And we can all do it if we're interested enough. I had a passion for the project to some extent. The words flowed quite quickly, probably dragging things from the back of my head and getting them down. And once I got them down, then you get you help with editing. Yeah, and I'm imagining, looking at the timing, you were doing this through lockdowns, through um, pandemic-inspired lockdowns? A bit of it. It did certainly help, and it provided a structure during lockdown. I was still doing coaching through web format. I had a, a board meeting to go to, which I was able to go to on occasions, so I had a combination of occasional travel, which was allowed, which I used for time for writing in the evening. And during the day, I just set times in the diary to write down and write for an hour and stop and write for an hour and do that way. And imagine lots of, what was your caffeine? Sweets? What was the what was the sugar rush that kept you going? Yeah, there was the biscuit. I have to say the, the, the bourbon biscuit was the one. A glass of wine helped. And breaking it up in short terms and using the excuse of, I need to rest my head so I can watch Netflix. So I watched an incredible expert in Bulgarian subtitled movies and Polish movies <laughs> as well, particularly in subtitles. So, you know, the next book might be on cinema in Eastern Europe, you know. The power of the treat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, probably a good place to start because I really want to dive in, into the book. And, you know, one of the, the lines that I really liked is being ineffective. You want to deliver sort of, help for people who are on boards who are involved in governance to be effective but they also crucially governance is a hugely important part for uh, non-profits isn't it like it's a crucial piece of the jigsaw if you like for effective guiding money ensuring it's safe making sure it creates impactful resources people often underestimate how important governance is until it goes horribly wrong and we've we've all seen the headlines yeah and therein lies the problem, because thankfully it doesn't go horribly wrong very often. And we can deal with a crisis, we can deal with an unfortunate disaster, perhaps an external problem that impacts on our charities. My concern is not the crises that happen occasionally, it is, shall we say, 
the indifference or the lack of aspiration a board has for itself. Let me draw an analogy. If you're a sports fan, you want your team to be top of whatever league or whatever sport it is, particularly it's a team sport. You really don't want to be a fan of a team that's avoiding relegation or not to lose too many games this month. There's a lot of organisations that stumble along doing quite good work, and because nothing's going wrong, the board don't think they need to intervene. It's about ensuring the culture of performance, of ambition for the board for itself and for its organisation is the key thing. And I think the danger, if we focus on crisis, people say, oh, well, we don't need support for our board. We haven't had a crisis in 10 or 15 years, or we're doing fine. Fine is not enough for the charity sector. If you're on a cause organisation, for example, with mental health, you need your organisation to be the best it can be. It needs to be led by passionate, skilled, committed individuals to the cause who are also good at governing the organisation. And it's that tone that the board needs to set. So that's the first point. The second point is a lot of the stuff that boards are dealing with is nuanced. It's sometimes difficult to count and it's difficult to catch. But those intangibles about what culture and behaviour the board takes with, for example, the chief executive, the senior officers, how visible the board members are to be supporting the vision and the purpose of the charity. And thirdly, how do the board members challenge each other to be better? How do they how often do they contest opinions? How often do they disagree and debate? about the purpose of the charity, its direction, and its performance. These are the things, these are the watchwords that I would use if I was speaking, for example, a charity in Auckland or anywhere else. And it's those questions board members need to have in their head about, are we on target? Are we still stuck with a purpose? Is this purpose still relevant? If not, should we adapt it? How do we measure performance? All these things should be renting space in board members' head, not just when they're at the meeting, but in the preparation up to the meeting, board meetings, committees, and afterwards. So that's a very long treatise, but I guess those are some of the things that I want to spark, you know, debate, perhaps indignation from board members, bit thought and reflection. Um, stands out with your, with your work, with your writing, is I think the word purpose, so governing with purpose. Expand for me why that's so important because that's not necessarily been a kind of important word in past generations maybe not characterized as that but why is purpose so important purpose well let's start with a quote from from harold wilson who says that the problem with committees is they take minutes and waste hours you know i've been on committees since about it was about 25 and i would sit at meetings of local government and meetings being dragged out purely for the purpose of dragging out and creating mischief because you were a political party in opposition. There was no added value to the questions. In actual fact, people didn't really want to ask questions. They just wanted to, to make it awkward. So there's a lot of governing goes on. I've seen governing not with much purpose. And I think that the sense that just because you go to a committee and you sit in a committee, is, is that committee relevant? Does it have a clear uh, rules and regulations, does it have a clear objective, and if not, 
board members should be saying, do we need that committee? So that's why the sense governing with purpose. This should be an active verb governing. Purpose should both your behaviour on the committee. So what is the purpose of today's committee? What's on the agenda? What's relevant? And purpose with a big P, how does it tie into the why the charity has been created? And if its rationale for working, is that still relevant? So these questions should be on the lips of every board member. They should be seeking clarity, justification, evidence from the senior officers who report to the board. And also the chief executive senior officers should ensure the board members don't veer off purpose, actually focus on relevant behaviour and a, rel a relevant focused agenda on boards. Because the thing is, you know, I've spent time coming back after a meeting of four or five hours thinking, that's four or five hours I'm not going to get back in my life. I could have been, you know, at the gym, gone for a pint, watched a soccer match, gone out with a partner, whatever, but I've wasted five hours, which I haven't enjoyed, and it's been unproductive. Now, Joe, particularly if you're a volunteer in a charity, surely your ambition should be to enjoy the experience, know you're adding value, and if not, do something else. And you said before, you know, you'd had a lot of the content for the book swimming around in your head for, from personal experience and, and for a number of years. So purpose being the sort of one of the main, well, the main principle, but what were the other learnings that you'd had and what are the other things that you committed in? Because you talk about principles in the book, don't you? What, what were some of, some of the other main ones? I think for me, board members need to realise that, that there is to govern. In a practical sense, they have obligations under charity law and state law. People talk to your trustees, you're actually director of a company. Now, you choose not to distribute the profit in a way that a private for-profit company would be, but your obligations as a company director are just the same. Your obligations are duty care to ensure that staff are properly treated are the same, and your obligations if you have premises under health and safety at the work acts right across most countries, that these are obligations. So this is quite a serious obligation. Your reputation can be shredded by a poorly performing or charge as to close. So that's an important point. This is a serious organisation you're engaged in, you have legal obligations as well as moral obligations to the charity on which you board, you reside. I think the second point is that you've got a responsibility to each other, to hold each other to account. So bad behaviour, people not reading the board papers, people not turning up, people not asking questions, people not seeing any of the committee meetings, these are things that board members should challenge off each other. So that's a, a second principle. The third principle is that, that you have a process where you held to account and your individual board performs as measured. So let me give you an example. You have a chief executive or a senior manager who have regular interviews on performance of each of the staff. He'll probably have a personal development plan for each of the staff and the chair of the board will have an annual appraisal of the chief executive or senior officer, as it should be. Yet, but who's appraising and assessing the effectiveness otherwise of board members? So board members should be demonstrating that they go through the same appraisal process and principle that the staff of the organisation do, to say, oh, we don't need to do that, we're the finished article, or we're above that stuff, is contrary to the spirit 
of the charity, but also shows an arrogance and indifference to actually learning and developing. The third principle of all of this is there needs to be term limits. I've sat on boards, I was on the, on the council where there were three people who'd already spent 30 years on that council. Wow. Now, they were decent fellas, they were men, but I defy aim to say you're still as sharp 30 years on. And even if you are, do you really want 65-year-olds on councils holding seats when you really want young people and people from diverse backgrounds on public bodies? I think that and the fourth, fourth principle really is that you're ambassadors for the charity. You've got incredible opportunity through your role in the board to go and advocate and influence on behalf of the charity. And I don't see enough board members doing that. And board members are uniquely placed to do that role. It's amazing how powerful that role can be. It's also an enjoyable experience. So these are some of the key elements that get a, a good governance process. See, good governance is an artist, not a science. Some of it can be scientific, but this is how you build human relationships yeah. around a common cause and a common purpose. Running through my mind, actually, when you were talking was around structures, super important, and that maybe that's the science. But, you know, I know from being on boards, culture is really important, right? And the, there's a power dynamic often on boards. Well, all, tip, I'd say always, right? Power is, plays a part in it. And, you know, particularly that's in the structure, you know, chair, deputy chair, the leadership of the board, its relationship. But would that be a good way of describing it? Culture and structure, both important? It's a great way. And I think that, you know, there's certainly that chair, chief executive relationship is, is, is crucial. They don't need, need to like each other, but there needs to be a way in which those two individuals work, that they help place each other's boundaries, they hold each other to account, and, it, and de facto it's a co-leadership role because the chair is responsible for the performance and the leadership of the board, the CEO is responsible for the performance and leadership of the organisation. Yes, the chair hires and fires the CEO, but that relationship is much more nuanced. You know, power is an interesting one because although the chair it has, in theory, the power to sack the chief executive, the reality is the organisational knowledge of the organisation resides with the chief executive and the power of that day-to-day -day knowledge of operational activities and all the detail is a fairly uh, significant issue. So chairs and CEOs need to understand each other's roles, respect each other's responsibilities, work together in the areas of common, common things, but get out each other's road. Yeah, and that lies the challenge, I think, isn't it? Because, you know, the chair, like you said, is ultimately taking responsibility, and but often without full sight of day-to-day -day and what's happening. Yes. Um, I, there's one term I like, which is, um, you know, eyes in, hands out. So this, this idea that, you know, you keep to your lane as a board, you are the one-step remove governors, and you trust your executives to get the job to deliver impact, change the world, you know, all that sort of stuff. But have you developed a thesis around any ideals, like best practice, or do you think it's it needs to fit the Yeah, I think I think I think you're you're right. It is on the in, in terms of so there there's there's a chart in the book that shows what so the CEO's role, what so the chief executive's role. But things around you know, external facing activity can be a shared role. Things around 
creating a culture within the organisation is a shared role. A, a role about ensuring respect to parts of organisation, our, our learning boards is a shared role. I think where the issue needs to start is the chief executive and the CEO need to get, particularly if they're new, one or the other is the way we do things here. So at the beginning of the appointment of a new CEO or a new chair, the both should be sitting down, getting to know each other, say, okay, how are we going to work together? Let's have a policy of no surprises. Let's agree in the areas where there is a, there's been muddiness or lack of clarity. We'll clarify those respective roles. Now, some of that may be on personal dynamics or interest. You might find a chair who's a bit more diffident and doesn't really want to do the ambassadorial role and wants to leave that to the CEO and vice versa. I think but that needs to be talked through and discussed and debated between the two of them and stick to it. Mm. I think there's an issue that there's a trust in the chief executive, but the chief executive needs to guide the board and not dominate the board by their weight of operational knowledge, but nor be deferential to the board. Again, that's about the chair supporting the CEO and helping the CEO and the senior management team to assist the board make better decisions. You see, there's sometimes a danger that the the board thinks their only job is to put manners on the CEO and hold them to account. Yes, they are. But that, to some extent, is a weak part of the board because the operational detail is in the hands of the chief executive. What's more important for the board is start to shape and direct the strategy of the organisation, forward thinking and forward planning. That's where they bring their expertise, but that's where they actually have real added value in real governance and leadership. Mm. Holding the chief executive account is grand, but that's looking backwards. The decisions have all been ready-made. The challenge for the board is the future decisions. Yeah. So that synergy between, first of all, the chair and the CEO about how we understand each other, how we work together, and the synergy between the CEO and the chair and the board is the next stage that needs to be worked on. Yeah, no, I love that. And can you give me an example where, because we talked before about you being an advisor, and example where you've come in and it, it may not have ended up in controversy or there may have been not a big explosion, if you like, but but maybe just wasn't an organization wasn't delivering the impact it should, where you came into a board situation and were able to turn things around, like a, an example? Yes, uh, a very interesting charity, not that far away from here, very new board, a very experienced CEO who had lost his way, had been there for a considerable period of time and was really running the show. And board reports were very late, decisions being made which were clearly board decisions, boards being bounced into decisions on additional staff members, decisions around closure opening during COVID were quite significant. And the board was really behind what was going on and at the same time it was poor performance and Bad, a bad culture around the staff. There was staff intimidation, et cetera, et cetera. So I worked with the board chair and the board to strengthen their understanding of what the role was. That's the first, that was the first stage of the process. The second stage of the process for them to remind themselves of what the responsibilities are and what they expected from the chief executive in terms of formal reports and regular procedures. Third thing is help them clarify a delegated decision 
uh, tree which was given to the chief executive and say these are the areas where uh, above this level needs to come to the board or no decision should be made. And that caused a, a fair degree of heartache with the chief executive and my recommendation to the board that you need to get your chief executive and help the board through that process and they removed the chief executive, decided to pay him off, which was the best decision ever made 18 months ago. The organisation now thriving, the culture around the board is much healthier, the board's much more confident, it's much more focused. Wonderful. And confronting those issues is not easy. And I think one of the main issues with a board, from my perspective, is you know, these are voluntary boards mostly. Yes. People have day jobs, they have families, they have interests, they have social lives. They don't necessarily have experience on the board or, you know, in a governance role. All of those things often lead to issues not properly being explored or challenged. But I imagine, you know, but putting in some structure and sort of a framework would be gold for those sort of but yeah do you think that at the heart of the some of the difficulty around the charity sector is the inexperience and the fact that it is often done in spare hours and time and what do you see the unique challenges for for voluntary sector boards yeah i think it's very hard i think finger really honest mark you know you're a part-time leader so where you're where you're on where you're in tesco's or you know watangi enterprises limited or whatever you're in there from an executive leadership role to guide and direct the organisation to have oversight. And if you are busy, yes, it is demanding. So I think, firstly, you can't know everything in a board. So as soon as you employ a member of staff, you're delegating, delegating authority and you're delegating trust. So you need to be clear when you go to your board meeting, is there an area of interest you're on? So some people are sold on finance or some people want in development or new ideas or staff welfare. Focus on an area where you're comfortable with, where you enjoy, and make that your speciality to get your teeth into understanding how the place works. Second thing is you can only create as much of a culture as you possibly can, but how you treat your colleagues around the board, kindness, respect, you can still have robust debates, but it needs to be courteous and it needs to be informed. These these sort of tones of behaviours actually impact on the rest of the organisation. So a board that's sensitive, thoughtful, but focused will help a chief executive be sensible, thoughtful and focused when they come to the board. And that's what they'll expect to senior managers who report to them. Try and get that together. Try and encourage everyone to be involved out with the meeting and at board meetings. Perhaps use people who are less confident, less experienced through subcommittees. So there's a bit about getting that space working well for yourself as a board member. And I think it's always asking the questions around, particularly around the awkward stuff around staff, because so much of this becomes a legal quagmire that board members are reluctant to place there. So it's this oversight of a duty of care. So have regular staff surveys. Ask the chief executive about staff performance, sickness and absence issues, what people feel like, you know, what's the measure of stress and risk in the organ, and sense check those things. That's all you can do. And asking those questions, do we have a plan? How do we compare with other sectors in the field? How do we compare with other charities? And there's a, lot, a number of 
you know, measures you can do in terms of, you know, recruitment processes, exit interviews, staff retention, you know, all these sorts of things can give you a sense of what's really going on in the culture of the organisation. And staff, board members need to take cognizance of that, be aware of it, and ask general welfare staff questions. Mm. It doesn't resolve these awkward issues, but I will, I'll, I'll give you this observation. I think when a situation like the one I refer to comes up, the trick is to deal with it quickly and swiftly because the poison and the toxicity of that relationship infects the whole of the organisation. And I, when I say decisively infectively, I don't mean dismissing a person, but when something like that happens, I, I was clear even for the first couple of times I met the, the person, they were tired, they were looking for a change, they were stuck. So you need to know what's going on. So I'm taking a long time to get here, but you need to bring in your senior manager, you need to know what's what their ambition is. If somebody's been in the same organisation for 13 years, you need to ask questions about, are they ambitious enough for themselves? Because if they're sitting there for 13 years, I'm not saying they're not going to do job, but, you know, is that the best for them? Have you, are the best days behind them? These are the sort of questions the board should be asking of the chief executive. Mm. Now, it may well be that they're dynamic, enthusiastic and fresh, but after 13 years, I think you get into habit. Yeah. And maybe that's not enough for your charity. And it's these sort of high-level reflections that board members need to be doing yeah. at board meetings. And then you get a better sense of whether you need to be moving your chief executive on, and if you do, how do you do it? and what you're looking for as a replacement. Yeah. And that's the thing board members don't need to be discussing very often, but you need to have a framework in your head to use your term of thesis, what you see your role as, what you see the board's purposes, and what is it, and how can you measure the board making a tangible difference in an organisation? Yeah. Or is it just getting in the road of the chief executive, demanding reports, and accountability on detail, which is distracting everyone? I want to get your thoughts on representation. So... You know, I've been worked in, in sectors and causes where people on on boards of organisations, like one example would be HIV. We had people on the board who had lived experience of, yes. of HIV and AIDS. Hugely powerful and beneficial to the decisions we made and the direction we went in. But I've also come across an example where a charity focused on mental health. Uh, and at one point in time, believe it or not, but all of the board we had experience of that particular mental illness which led to some really big practical challenges because you know just it just did and you know i'm i'm a, i guess i'm on the personal belief that if you're focused on a, on a particular cause having representation or people who understand it from a lived experience is important but then if you're an animal charity that that's not necessarily going to rub but yeah we'd love to get your thoughts on on representation how powerful or important that is or not I think what's critical for me around a board is diversity of thought is as well as diversity of place. And I think boards need to be much more representative of the communities and interests they serve. So that would be my big principle. Certainly in boards I've sat on, both formal state boards and not-for-profit boards, the voice of the lived experience is really important. But it's not the sole voice. Remember, you're a board of governance. You're not a representational panel. And I think that boards sometimes try to get two for the price of one. So let's just say you're a mental health charity and you have someone on the board who happens to be a lawyer 
who's sister also mental health. I mean, I, I charted to a lot of that. I don't know if that really works. So I think there's a principle, remember, in your board of governments. So what does a board of governments work really well with? Curiosity, good questions, people who are there to ask the questions about the governance of the organisation that's affecting us. They don't need to be experts on a particular condition that the charity functions, but needs to be able to have access either for service users being on the board or panels where the lived experience can aid and improve the quality of the organisation. So I think people need to get that principle established. Diversity is really important because you need people who challenge each other and come from different backgrounds and see things differently. The more brains around the table, usually the better the quality of the decision. So I do think there is a problem, certainly in the part of the world I inhabit, habit, for a lot of charity boards to be dominated by, you know, middle-aged men, middle class, mostly white running organisations that are for mostly vulnerable people of all social classes and all colours. So there's a bit of that. Does the board represent the people who serve and work for the organisation? No, I think that needs to be improved. But getting a balance of how the board gets the lived experience, and so you may want that on a board, you may want a panel of service users who you ask to on key issues. You may want a version of a citizen assembly for service users twice a year that boards meet. You know, so you need to find you need to find models that act in the best interest of your charity's purpose and do they add value. And then thirdly to that, I think you need to have turnover on your board, not too frequent, but you need fresh faces and you need spaces for precisely the people that you and I are talking about. So how you build that balance of its board, you know, both social class, background experience, lived experience, curiosity, and people who are passionate about good governance and the cause. Yeah. What you don't need is stuff with lawyers and accountants and medical professionals because you want to have them on the board for nothing. That tends to be a board will be good in the paperwork. I'm not too sure gives you the dynamism that you need. And certainly a lived experience board, if I think of my experience in Edinburgh, when it was the AIDS world, the AIDS capital of Western Europe, the amount of work that we did together with the charity sector led by lived experience people who worked really brilliantly together, inspired and informed a whole new shape of practice that without that experience, the HIV issue in Edinburgh would have not been dealt with as quickly as it had been without lived experience. So I'm a big fan of it. I think in those in areas of public health, it's got tremendous benefit. Absolutely no doubt about it. But your job should be get the best people on the board. And that's a question of governance. That's a question of good recruitment and testing people to be on the board. And actually having regular turnover, term limits, helps. Because then you get fresh thinking, fresh ideas, in, and you keep moving the charity on. Yeah. And you, you advise on leadership and, and you talk to leadership issues as well. Just changing tack for a second and looking at your career, you've, you've had some really significant leadership roles. So the one that sort of really jumps out was um, your leadership of the NHS Lothian board, which is, uh, you know, for looks like five years, which is a significant task. I think, you know, budget of 1.2 billion, 27,000 employees. But yeah, what was that like? Gee, it was a roller coaster. 
one of the one of the big jobs was to bring four different organisations together under one single purpose NHS board. That caused a lot of angst. Not from me. There was a lot of uh, sectional interest. Nobody wanted to change. But the reality is a single tier system is much more effective than two tiers. So that was a big issue. There was a private financial initiative, new hospital, the new Royal Hospital built by private finance initiative. Unions were dead against that. I would have been very sympathetic to the trade unions. So they were never away from me trying to see if we could bring this back into public ownership. They can, the, start, the conditions of service for the employees there were poorer than the ones in the other hospitals in the city doing the exact same job. That was a huge issue. We introduced a, introduced a concept of a minimum wage for all the NHS employees, which has caused a lot of controversy with the government, but was then accepted by the other NHS boards. We had uh, a closure of a small part of West Lothian Hospital, which was the area which Robin Cook, the Labour MP, covered. And he was my mentor when I first got involved in politics. And I had to tell him that this was being closed in the best rent of the quality care. And that was a bit of a really emotional turmoil for me, frankly, having to, you know, challenge my mentor and say that, you know, what you're asking to do is unacceptable, it's poor practice. And that's about naked politics rather than about the quality of life. And I, I found that quite quite challenging in an emotional sense for somebody who I looked up to and admired. Was that you in terms of your leadership and leading through difficult times and difficult issues. Yes. Was that that realisation that just going back to the purpose all the time, going back to why you're there, what you're trying to achieve is, is kind of... Yes, exactly. That was that, you know, the evidence that I had from the best clinicians in the land was incontrovertible, you know, and this was one patient a day being moved from a regional hospital to the best trauma facility possibly in the UK certainly in Scotland, and I thought that the, this was an unreasonable political demand not to have any change dressed up in a closure of hospital. You know, attending meetings of five or 600 people being for blood from a place that was 15 miles away from Edinburgh, going to the best facility, there'd be, a pub, there'd be free public transport back and forth to the hospital, and I thought what we were doing was reasonable, and what I was and the board was being faced with was an unreasonable demand of whipped up political fury on one or two persons. And paradoxically, this part of the Lothians was the poorest part of the Lothians. Health inequalities are far greater than anywhere else. And what we were being asked, or what I felt we were being asked to do, is put up with poorer services for some part of the Lothians to avoid the blushes of local elected representatives and just you know that to me was just you know that's a red line you don't cross so that was huge being the newspapers probably once a week and chaining a big board meeting of 25 30 people so i mean and having to trust the chief executive having to keep people in line try and get agreement try and balance the clinical demands with the financial implications of service Juggling all these balls was very demanding. It was a great experience. Glad I did it. But I found after five years, I really don't want to be doing this again. So, because I've been around the <laughs> health board 
for actually yeah. almost 10 years at this stage. And I found I wasn't making the impact and getting the change I believe was needed in terms of the quality health in the NHS in Lothian. So I thought I wanted to be doing something else. So dealing with these big, difficult issues and helping board members who weren't used to big public meetings and who were intimidated, understandably, by people literally being for blood. You know, I was used to it because I'd spent 20 years on the council before that. So as I knew how these things go, but for people who thought, well, you know, we're doing the right thing. Why is there such a public floor? They found that quite difficult. And I find I just spent a lot of my time supporting them through that as the senior clinicians. So I found that some of that behavior distasteful. I knew it was dishonest because it's for a political dodge rather than for genuine commitment to improving the quality of care. Mm. And it sort of, it frustrated me and saddened me in equal measures that that was all that energy wasted on something that was relatively small, that no clinician was disagreeing with that. You know, so and that I had to wrestle with my conscience, but it did frustrate me, and I felt that the leadership I was doing was pushing people and keeping people in line, rather than a discussion debate about what good healthcare look could look like. Yeah. So I felt I was resorting to to old styles of leadership. Yeah. Much against my my instincts, as it were. Yeah. Interesting. Because then you moved from what I could see, you moved into coaching and, and eventually consulting as, as you're doing now. And you've been doing that a long time, which is wonderful. Just a bit more of a positive, you just touched on there actually around more sort of glass half full and, and positive view of the world and how can we do good and how can we make someone a better person and more effective leader and all those sort of things. Is that Was that the thinking behind the move? Yes. I mean, my my partner was, was involved in coaching and interesting that when I first when I first became chair of NHS Lothian, I wanted to have a coach and I got a coach because I thought, although I was experienced in politics, I wasn't experienced in the NHS. I'd worked with the NHS in partnership when my role as chair of social work. But I wanted I wanted to do things differently and I wanted to be a, a, a more effective leader and I wanted to be a more collegiate leader because the reality is this was a complex organisation. I had to work with four other organisations and meld them to one. I need to ensure I had, a, you know, new approaches to leadership. And to me, it's about surrounding yourself with better people. I knew I was chair. I wasn't worried about that, but I wanted to use my personal authority rather than my positional authority. And I wanted to surround myself with better people, people on the board who challenged me and tested me. I wanted to learn new things about myself and develop new skills. That's why I, I was quite excited being chair. And I certainly had a lot of those. So through those periods of almost 25 years of good, bad and indifferent leadership, I thought, I wish I'd had a coach when I first started in the council in 1982. I'd have been a better councillor, I'd have been more effective, it'd have been better for my career. And it's critical that we all have coaches, not for just the bad times, but for good times. So I had that principle established, Mark. And so when the opportunity said going to coaching came up, I thought, that is a natural next stage for me to be. And there are lots of good leaders out there, and there's lots of really decent people who want to do their best. And there must be the only part of the world, you know, world's work, that you don't support people for leader. People presume that leadership is some magic thing that everyone has. No, it's a skill that can be adapted and developed just like everyone else, you know? So how do you equip people to make difficult decisions? 
and coaching is a key role as as a normal, not just when there's a crisis do you bring the coach in. Again, a sports parallel, all the best sports people have coaches all the time, not just when they're not doing well. So if you want to be a best leader, you need to surround yourself with really good people. You need a place where you can reflect to someone who's completely dispassionate about the role and you need to be able to think, you know, outside the decision-making forum because being a chair and being a CEO can be a lonely place. You're expected quite rightly to support and mentors and the rest of the board and the senior staff. But where do you get your support? When you're not too sure or anxious or concerned or worried about the future or worried about your own performance, who helps you? And yes, you speak to the board members and you should be comfortable with that. But some people don't feel comfortable with that. So where do they get the chance to reflect back, observe, hear perhaps uncomfortable truths about themselves, which is really critical? And that's where coaching and mentoring has such a really important role, particularly for people in the not-for-profit sector who you said earlier on, you know, are doing this for a passion, for a belief, as well as family life and a full-time job. Coaching is a critical help way to help them get better at doing what they love doing. Yeah, wonderful. And do you have, as we look towards wrapping up, do you draw on mentors? Do you draw on content? How do you get your inspiration and your guidance? I, partly, I get my inspiration for, I have a coach, my partner's a coach. I read a lot. I get inspiration from from my life experience, the, the people I've been around, you know, for almost 40 years of my life in public service. I started in the children's panel system, which is a, a lay system for children to avoid in the criminal justice system from the age of 22. I was inspired by people who'd been doing that work from the beginning, that, that whole program, which is a distinctive Scottish program. There were some great leaders I was around in local government. I met some inspiring people around the charity sector, particularly around learning disabilities. Many of them have coached and many I still keep in touch with. I love working with charities and just even, you know, next week I'm going up to see people in Belfast. They are great. I got three or four clients in Scotland I, I see on a regular basis. And I also chair a private sector SME, which gives me a different perspective. So I'm learning all the time uh, still. And I've got that contemporary experience of sitting on a board of a private sector company and of a housing associate charity. So it helps me keep my shore sharp and you get a chance to pick up things from people and you see some great stuff going and there's some fantastic stuff going on in the charity sector. There are some wonderful people doing really creative stuff, almost despite the, the constraints of state funding and state rules. And being around some of those visionaries is quite inspiring. So long may it continue. And in terms of your message to someone who's considering taking up a board position, what were the key bits of advice that you'd give them? That, you know, there's, there's someone out there listening to this. Know your why. Why are you doing it? Why this charity? First question. Second is what you're doing it for and who you're doing it for. You know, so you may feel that you've been advised at work to get more career development. So get yourself in a charity, not a bad thing. But you, you know, and is there a fit between you and the charity? So yes, it might be a good career move, but do you really want to be involved in a charity? For example, that is about, you know, animal, the use of animals for 
medicines if you're, you know, you've got a view that that shouldn't be done. So make sure there's a fit and give yourself a what, you know, what does good look like? So what does a good meeting look like for you? What do you want to contribute? So ask yourself those four or five questions before you sign up. Try not to sign up because a friend said to you, we run this great charity, we're a bit tight on money, we're desperate for an accountant to come on the board, will you come and help me out? You may say yes after that, but try not to do that. Try and see this as any other job. Does it fit with your career plan? Does it look like something you'd like to do? Can you imagine yourself doing it? Perhaps ask, can I come and sit in a board meeting just to see what it's like beforehand, before you make your decision? And if you're thinking about being on a charity board, either as a part of career development or want to give something back, or you've had a lived experience that in your life that's been really productive and you want to bring your expertise, look for boards who are looking for apprentice board members. Maybe say if you can shadow a board member to get a sense of it. You know, do the same techniques you would do with any other thing and any certainly employment process you were looking for, but know why you're being on that board. Great advice, because you'll soon be tested when things are tough and maybe the money's difficult and uh, maybe there's, there's some HR issues that are um, coming your way. Yes, and, and you know, and the thing is, and try not to do, you see, one of the problems with some of the charity boards is people from the charity set to go on each other's board in one sense, that's healthy because they understand the system, but they often bring a managerial context. So if I'm a senior manager, let's just say I'm the, the head of finance in the Mark Millennium charity, right? And I'm on the Kavanaugh Care for Cooley charity, right? And you say to me, I've got a great finance officer that'll help you with the money. The person comes along with their day job head. I need them not to be the day job head. I need to be in their governance job head asking about, is that the right priority here? Does it mip the purpose? Are we veering off course? Do we have a process here? You know, what's the objective of this stuff? I need them to be in that leadership governance role. So there's a bit about if you're going from a charity to another charity, it's really important you know your why. So I want to learn governance techniques. I want to be more confident in speaking in public. I want to discover how the board and chief executive re reoperate. There's no harm when you come into board as a learning experience for yourself because that, that ambition for yourself will rub off on being ambitious for the organization and vice versa. Really good advice. Brian Kavanagh, massive thank you for joining me on Pepsi. I can really love to do that, Mark, and take care and look after yourself. Bye now. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.